I think that's the critical thing you need to do. When you're going through Tocqueville, you're not in there, hopefully at least, you're not in there looking for anecdotes or quotes that support your position pithily. You're there to try and map out with great resolution the argument of a master to your profession, to the field that you're interested in looking at. Welcome to the Acton Line Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. The Acton Institute's Emerging Leaders Program is a leadership development initiative that brings together a cohort of students from across the nation and globe for a transformative experience. During the summer, emerging leaders gain professional experience, grow their network, and delve deeper into the ideas of a free and virtuous society. In this episode, we sit down with three of our emerging leaders, Walker Haskins, Lauren McCoy, and David Mendoza. They discuss Acton's Emerging Leaders Program, the landscape of the broader liberty movement, and how Acton fits into their future scholarly pursuits. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today is a very special edition of Acton Line. Uh, I am here in the studio with uh, three of our emerging leaders. Acton has a summer uh, emerging leaders program where we bring folks from all over the world together to work and to study and to learn together. And uh, I am joined by three of our emerging leaders here this afternoon uh, with uh, Walker Haskins, Lauren McCoy, and David Mendoza. And I want to open this up. We call this program the Emerging Leaders Program. And I think maybe the best way to start, and we'll start with Walker, is what are you emerging from? What's a little bit of your background before coming to Acton? And what were some of the things that you were hoping to learn, to study, to accomplish uh, uh, over this over this program? Yeah, so um, I'm Walker, and uh, I'm coming from a broader interest and background in the liberty movement, first and foremost. I've been involved within a range of capacities. I think I, for a while, I've wanted to work in the liberty movement. So working at Acton was very exciting for me. And I, you know, I was in university at the University of Amsterdam. And I had done a couple of summer internships, but I saw that you guys had rebranded the Emerging Leaders Program, and I saw that you guys had exactly what I wanted. You guys had a research wing, and I wanted to come in and learn as much as I could from, you know, from you, Dan, of course, and from Dylan Palman, and from the research department, from the great Sam Gregg. Um, so, yeah, I, I just came here hoping to get as much as I could from that. Well, I hope we gave you the flavor you craved. <laughs> uh, Lauren, uh, what's, a little bit, what's a little bit of your background and why were you interested in the Emerging Leaders Program? 
My undergrad degree was in communications, and so I now have a master's uh, of public policy, and so I'm in my last year of that at Pepperdine. So I go in there, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm really passionate about my area, but I want formal educational training in the classics. And so when I saw that Acton really kind of embedded that in their internship, I'm like, this is it. This is where I need to be. And sure enough, I do. I feel so much more confident in my own discipline because now I feel that I have that foundation in which now I can communicate better about those issues, but in the field of public policy. So I feel that um, when I'm analyzing policies or, th- or proposing something, that it's grounded and rooted in a correct foundational platform of um, all the things that we got to talk about. So free market capitalism and um, really promoting the individual liberties of people and dignifying them as well. And so um, I really appreciate that Acton has fully emerged me in that realm. (laughs) Thank you, Lauren. Uh, David. Hey, Dan. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm currently a graduate student at Westminster Seminary, California, over in San Diego. And I got interested in acting because I my undergraduate work was actually in history with like an emphasis in American politics. So when I began my studies in seminary with historical theology, I've always kind of had this overarching interest in history and politics that I found Acton allowed me to sort of blend my interests with theology and in uh, political economy. And so I found a number of different scholars that were affiliated with Acton that were uh, within the tradition that I'm working in. And one of my professors, Dr. David Van Drunen, was a recipient of the Novak Award in the early 2000s. He highly recommended Acton. Um, He had a very great experience over here, and he um, helped me uh, apply for the program. And that's it's been a great experience ever since. Excellent. Thank you, David. This gives me exactly three threads to emerge out of all of your three introductions. (laughs) And the first thread I want to pull on is Walker talked about the broader liberty movement. Let's Let's unpack that a little bit. So we often talk in sort of the think tank space about sort of categories. You know, there's places like Brookings, which is a more sort of center left, you have, you know, uh, you know, the uh, American Enterprise Institute, which is a more center right. We have libertarian think tanks like the Cato Institute. All three of those focus on policy, which isn't necessarily where Acton is most active. And we'll get into that with the second thread when we taught when Lauren brought up the classics. But I just I, I, I'm wondering, you know, where is young people to, today? Do you see, you know, what to you is this broader liberty movement? What does it look like? What are some of the challenges and opportunities within it? You know, that's a good question. You could probably categorize the the parts of the broader liberty movement in a couple of ways. Um, so I would say, I, I, in its most simple form, I'm going to say that the liberty movement is that social movement of you know various organizations and various peoples that are looking for limited government, uh, and that there's far more than just traditional think tanks in that space. And truth be told, Acton itself isn't one of those traditional think tanks. I think you know when we situate Acton in that liberty movement space, it's an educational think tank. It's a qualified think tank. It's a think tank that is looking to examine and educate people on first principles first and foremost and policy 
rarely comes up, if it comes up at all. The idea is to to educate and to inform on those really foundational, philosophical, classical principles and not to do policy. So I, I think there's some of those educational think tanks in the liberty movement space. Then you definitely have some of the policy think tanks. There's some very specific policy think tanks, like, you know, Interested National Center for Law and Economics in Oregon. Um, and then you get some that are like a mix of both, like Cato. Cato does some of everything. I mean, they do some of the stuff that we exactly do here with the educational space at, you know, libertarianism.org or Cato Classics. Yeah. One of the one of the interesting things when you talked about that distinction between educational and policy, I started to think back to one of the very early uh, sort of think tanks in this broader liberty movement, the Foundation for Economic Education. Mm, that's a good, yeah. Um, Edmund Opitz was long involved with FEE and donated uh, his library collection uh, to Acton. Um, at, with his passing, he was a congregational minister, so he kind of got the religious uh, liberty synthesis. Now, one of the one of my all time favorite essays to come out of the broader liberty movement is one that was written by Leonard Reed, the founder of Fee, and mm -hmm. it has the very unfortunate title "How to Get Action." Mm -hmm. And in it, he 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 kind of justifies that educational posture rather than you know strict policy activism. And he, he poses the question, what if writing and thinking is all there is? What if like the necessary precondition to all action is this sort of thought discussion? And he goes on to outline sort of why that was fees strategy. And I think I think I think Walker, I think you're very right. I think I think Acton is much more uh, in that in that sort of educational space. Um, when you think of these these sort of broader liberty movement questions, Lauren, what 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 do you think? What do you how do you, how do you unpack? How do you make sense of of this world? I saw a lot of um, uneducated college students thinking that they knew what was right because they heard it somewhere, or at least they have a basic principle of what they're advocating for. In which it was like, okay, you know, we love that. But at the same time, it's like, can you explain yourself to somebody who is adamantly against you and who has good arguments? And I think um, the the value of Acton is that they truly do place you and um, ground you in principle in which then you do have the tools and the critical thinking skills to explain these things to people who are um, not advocating for the same principles. And so um, I find that sometimes, you know, it's easy in the policy realm to kind of just follow your own biases and then think like, yes, this is the way it should ought to be. But there's really not really much justification there. And so to be educated in the classics by Acton, I feel has definitely equipped not only just me, but the policy world to um, further um, examine the policies that they're proposing. And so that's why it's so valuable to be to have an educational think tank in yeah. the world. David, you come from a more explicitly sort of churchly context in the seminary, and there is a tremendous amount of education that goes on in churches and synagogues and mosques. Where, where do you see the role of these sort of educational um, initiatives, particularly in the world of, of faith? Yeah, I, I definitely think that there there is a big role for Acton to fill in places where, like faith groups, churches, and whatnot. I'm, I'm a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, 
Westminster is a traditionally reformed school. And one of the things that I think is very common for us to talk about on campus is that with all of the sort of political questions, social questions, societal questions that are sort of facing us in the United States and really around the globe today is how do we think through these things um, without sort of hijacking the Bible in like a sort of Christian nationalist way? And also, how do we uh, address some of these issues with a robust understanding of how economies work? One of the things that I've very resonated with since being here is hearing Father Roberts' uh, desire to give economic training to seminarians in his original, in his and Chris Martin's original vision for Acton. And for me personally, that has struck very uh, well because I'm coming from an institution where we're most of us do not have education in the economy or economic principles and whatnot. And I think that that does still to this day open up a lot of people towards ideas such as liberation theology, which is very prevalent in the theological academy and in Latin America in particular. And so a place like Acton, I think what it does is it allows us to study like Lauren has pointed out some classical thinkers like Adam Smith, like Bastiat, um, uh, like Hayek, um, that kind of ground us in this limited government, free market idea, um, also giving us a good Christian anthropology, uh, broadly Christian anthropology of the human person um, that is sort of uh, held in a natural law, or I guess you could say a common grace idea from a reform perspective. And I think that those, those social thought principles that Acton provides for us that those core ideas are exactly what um, I, I personally was looking for. And I think a lot of faith groups, churches, uh, religious organizations can heavily benefit from, uh, from the ideas that Acton is putting out there. Excellent. And we've come back around to the classics, which was Lauren's initial observation. Now, one of the things we do in the Emerging Leaders Program is we lead a series of seminars that involve sort of readings. Um, you all... Also, in, in, in the studio here, you all also participated in a, an Acton co-sponsored program with Liberty Fund, which is a sort of guided Socratic uh, discussion over, over text. You know, everybody spends a long time reading, you know, 300 pages of sort of classic texts, and then we get together and we discuss them and try to learn from each other. I guess I have, I have, I have two questions about this. One is... Why this as opposed to, let's say, picking up an economics textbook or picking up a, you know, uh, like a catechism in a religious context? Um, why, why return to these original old books? And then the second part of the question is, how do you engage both both yourself with these sorts of classic works, and then how do you engage with others when you're brought into into a, into a room with people with all different sort of academic backgrounds from all other places around the world? Um, how do you how do you how do you enter into that dialogue with other folks? Um, and and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna put put Lauren on the spot here because I think she's given a lot of thought to this. Well, as somebody, like, especially during the Liberty Fund deal, um, I was not formally trained in economic theory. 
I, I've taken every, you know, the macro and microeconomics with the math based portion in which it was like, that's kind of for me, the type of class you just get through because I hate math. And um, so anyway, um, when I got to grad school, I got to finally immerse myself in those theories because that needs to be well known in the policy field, of course. But I feel like I learned more at that conference than I have in my classes because I got to read those works. And then not only that, when I read it, I got something different from somebody else and um, than somebody else. So when we got to discuss these things... Um, I learned more when somebody else put pointed out something. And by the end of that conference, my book was marked up almost like in various colors and in various notes because somebody else brought up something different that made me rethink and think critically about what my position was. And so um, to really be immersed in those economic theory principles, I feel like I finally got a grasp on those things. And that was really fun. Peter Betke wrote an essay. Peter Betke is a professor of economics at George Mason University, wrote an essay um, a while back about sort of why read these old books. And he makes the case that part of the reasons you keep returning to these sort of texts is that they're very rich and you're always finding something new. And there's, there's, there's a way in which things often get lost in the translation between you know, the original sort of like seminal thinkers and its textbook distillation. And I, and I think your remarks reminded me very much of that. David, what's, what's your perspective, particularly when you look at how do you enter dialogue with, how do you, how do you, how do you maintain a posture where you're open to what Lauren's talking about of like, oh, there's these, there's these new perspectives on these texts that maybe aren't mine. Maybe I agree. Maybe I disagree. But there's sort of like, you know, you, you gain something, some new perspective. How do you maintain that openness and how do you contribute to those sorts of conversations? With the text, I guess, or with people? So this would be both 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 with the text and then with people because there is that sense of interaction and discovery and an engagement across cultures and across time with the text themselves and then you're in a room with some other emerging leaders or some other folks at a conference or you're at an academic symposium and then so yeah you're yeah it it operates on both of those layers and how do you how do you navigate that i asked a similar question to dylan palman uh because his background is also in historical theology so i my background is uh, primarily examining texts within that sort of historical light, and so when I when I approach a lot of these, I'm I'm I usually engage them from the perspective of like what is this person saying, sort of like uh, sort of like exegeting a particular text and looking at the historical context. And I I've learned that um, I guess I for the most part keep an open mind with. A number of different texts just to let them say what they say on their own terms, not let me read my own perspective into it or like my own bias into it. Um, and then I just, if I'm understanding correctly, at least, uh, I, I think that when I'm engaging with other people, it I find that I don't make myself super confrontational, but more so just ask clarifying questions with people that are not exposed to these ideas, because a lot of the times these ideas of limited government can stir up a lot of very interesting uh, debate. 
Um, so what I've found that's helpful with engaging folks is, you know, if something comes up and they're they're wanting to have more discussions about that, I've, I've found that the question of asking them, well, have you read so-and-so? Are you sure that's what, you know, Bastiat is saying? Are you sure that's what this broader, these broader thinkers in the liberty, liberty movement have said? Um, and sort of kind of putting the questions back on them and letting them sort of give their own response uh, to that rather than sort of engaging on strictly a defensive mode. I want there to be a good conversation, I guess. Yeah. So what what's very interesting to me is we, t- we talked about how this works on these, these sort of two levels with the tax and with others. And then... You talked about your attitude towards the text and that you want to cultivate a spirit of openness to the text and learning what it has to say, not bringing your own biases, your own history to that. And then the way you model engagement with others is to invite them into that inquiry as well of this is what I'm doing here. Um, Here are here are the questions that I found helpful in working through these issues. And I'd ask you to bring that same spirit of openness and inquiry uh, to these questions that you model. I think that, I think that's absolutely outstanding. Now Walker worked in the research department and we had many conversations and I know that Walker is someone who likes to perform sort of deep and exhaustive dives into these things and just totally immerse himself in these texts, how do you do that and still walk away with 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 takeaways or with an understanding? I guess I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of a conversation we had early on when you when you and I were talking, and you said, you know, there's so much. How do you know, like that you've you've met, you know, like it seems like the more I read, the more questions I have, the more the more sort of rabbit trails open up. How do you maintain that passion and that interest, which animates that inquiry, but still take away concrete things from, from your experience? And maybe, and maybe this is sort of a, you know, cause this is, this is what researchers do is, you know, this is what, you know, you do a state of scholarship and you try to, you know, intake, everything, you know, that has been said on a topic. And then you try to contribute something new. Um, how do you see your experience at acting over the summer as, as, as facilitating that sort of inquiry that you were already, you, I mean, you came here raring to go for this stuff and uh, you've been an excellent model of that. How do you, how do you translate that sort of curiosity into something that's more than just the more than just an endless curiosity where it, where it starts to inform your broader thinking so i think the key thing in this whole enterprise of research of reading of educational formation when you're going to a text you map out its argument as explicitly as you possibly can I think that's the critical thing you need to do. When you're going through Tocqueville, you're not in there, hopefully at least, you're not in there looking for anecdotes or quotes that support your position pithily. You're there to try and map out with great resolution 
the argument of a master to your profession, to the field that you're interested in looking at. And so you, you brought up this topic of openness. How do I remain open to the text while at the same time coming back with insights? Again, I think the key is, is you it's mapping out the argument. You don't try to both remain open and glean insights at once. There are two different stages, I think, of the research project. You have the openness level when you map out the argument. You try and map out the argument with an open mind and with every detail in your mind in as great detail as possible. And you try and do that as much as you can in one instance of time while you're doing that. And then, you know, you take a couple of ways days away from the text and then you look back at it and you start questioning it and you say, well, you know, this made super sense a couple days ago, but now that I look back over it, I'm wondering, Machiavelli said something completely different in Tocqueville here. Which one of them is right? Then you need to, again, it ties back to critical thinking, and again, it ties back to mapping out the argument. Because then if you have two masters that disagree, or like you brought up earlier, the difference between, you know, modern learning, the cutting edge of economics, and uh, the classics, you have to map out both of their arguments, get to know them in all of their detail. And then figure out exactly where they depart and they disagree. And then focus your inquiry on exactly that point of their arguments that opposes each other and those places where it comes together. This is a very scholastic. It is. It's exactly <laughs> it's exactly scholastic. Yeah. And and speak and speaking of scholastics, one of the things, and this is something that David alluded to in his original answers, one of the unique things about acting is this is the synthesis between religion and economics. And part of this animates our scholarly work when we do like translations like the sources in early modern ethics, economics, and law, where we bring these sort of sixteenth, seventeenth century thinkers, you know, look at Look at their economic thinking, which is often neglected. Um, you look at uh, you know the classic sort of Spanish scholastic tradition of reflection on economics. Um, these are all things that we we want to highlight and that we do a sort of a sort of resourcement with. And this is this is unique. These aren't sources that you know a typical sort of like. Uh, public policy-driven sort of think tank is going to look to. What is it about that synthesis of religion and economics that is compelling to you? And I guess we'll, we'll start off with David because this is our, our historical theologian. Um, what, what are those – what is grounding these arguments – in an earlier religious tradition, what sort of work does that do and what sort of avenues uh, does that open that might not otherwise be there? Yeah, I think that there's a number of ways that you can take this. For me, at least, what's very interesting about this synthesis is an understanding of how people work um, in uh, with that religious theological understanding of humanity in the context of an economic market. Um, there's a quote that uh, many people at Acton um, will recite of Ch uh, John Paul II when he said the primary failure of socialism was anthropology. Um, and I think that there's a lot of truth in that. And that also demonstrates the connection that economic 
policy or economic uh, or economic thought overlaps with uh, religion and theology. I think that there's a number of different uh, factors that sort of make up uh, a free and a virtuous society as we would like to cultivate here at Acton. And I think that one can only understand that with the understanding of the moral aspect in relation to the uh, economic aspect or the political economy. And so, yeah, no, it's a very... It's a very compelling synthesis to look at. Um, I think that oftentimes we've sort of divorced these things from each other when I don't think historically that adds up. Um, you know, I think in the Reformational era, even the later parts of the Reformation, a lot of the thinkers and the uh, theologians of the time were writing significantly on issues regarding civil government and natural law. How do we live in a society that is becoming less and less dominated by a king deciding what your religion is? And there's uh, now this sort of new introduction of religious freedom in society, which wasn't there before. And so uh, these questions are old questions that philosophers, theologians have been asking and economics is sort of, in my mind, an, an outgrowth of those things. And so not, not many people are doing that. Um, it's a very unique thing about Acton that I've personally enjoyed. And I think that, you know, a lot of the concerns that people have had that have led them to uh, uh, ideas like liberation theology have been economic concerns that people have had. And then they they try to develop a theology that sort of meets their needs with, in my mind, oftentimes very good intentions. Um, and I think that that's where the sort of ideal uh, of what society could be like kind of runs into reality and in how humanity actually works and how economics actually works. All the more reason to be informed on free market economics um, to sort of help you make those uh, decisions for what would be a good uh, solution for society that also um, meets the the theological critiques or um, proposals that I would like to push forth, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah. And when you, when you talked about grounding this in anthropology, and I'm going to throw Walker the big Austrian economics bone here, is... Economics is, of course, a social science, and there is a conception of the human person, human action. Um, how, do, how do you unpack that? Well, we've had many conversations about the intersection between economics and sociology and, you know, and how this brings in these broader questions of who the human person is, freedom, responsibility, um, and I'm just going to open open you up to, to riff on that because I know you've got excellent riffs. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dan. I have to say, when it comes to philosophical anthropology, human anthropology, whatever you want to call it, and you know, I don't mean by that the the social science of anthropology, although it's related to that. That sort of philosophical anthropology is simultaneously one of the hardest and the most complex intellectual enterprises, and perhaps the most important, because everything in the social sciences comes from a certain foundation of what we think 
people are like, what they do, how they react, and what they're going to tend towards. And if we're not conscious about those suppositions about what people are like, we can sometimes make massive errors that can cost, that have a really massive human cost. I mean, you can look at communist regimes all around the world. My mom grew up in communist Poland, for instance, and that, as far as communist regimes go, Poland wasn't the worst of them by far, but it also wasn't a lovely place to live. And that speaks to the importance of getting philosophical anthropology right. You know, there's some people who are immediately going to object. They're going to be like, well, you know, that's what we have psychology for. That's what we have empirical sociology for. That's what we have empirical anthropology for. We don't need these theological texts. We don't need philosophical anthropology. We're based on evidence. And I don't think most of the people here at Acton would say, let's toss out the evidence. Let's get rid of the science. But there are certain things, and this is going over to the Austrian economics thing. There are certain things about the human person that aren't easily testable by the natural sciences that are nonetheless hugely important. You can't run a lot of controlled experiments with human beings, especially in economics. We can't just say, all right, you know, you 200 of you go over there. We're going to give you the treatment, which involves, you know, no trading at all. And the rest (laughs) of you get to trade as normal. Like, that's not ethical. That's not okay. (laughs) You can't run natural experiments in economics. You can't run natural experiments very often in psychology, which leads to self like the replicability crisis. Can you imagine the, the idea of certain natural experiments in psychology? Like, a lot of the most important (laughs) things that we would need to do to really understand the human person from an empirical, psychological perspective are so deeply unethical that if anybody did them, they would be imprisoned for the rest of their lives. But when we come to the philosophy of the human person, well, that is humanity looking back onto itself, this Verstehen-esque method, to use Weber's term. And that's just as important of a thing even if it's not, strictly speaking, empirical. It's meaning in its purest sense. And if we, it is a hugely important component of understanding people. And I think that's what Acton tries to do. It tries to make a dialogue on that. Because if we don't speak about it, we're still going to have those suppositions, but they're going to be less robust. And that can cause some really big mistakes. Absolutely. Lauren, I was wondering if you could speak maybe to the more practical end of this. Um, The theoretical end is very important, um, and it animates a lot of the work we do. But David mentioned, you know, know, the context of, you know, Acton's history, you know. um, How do you see this vision sort of articulated to regular people? or to people who just have questions about public policy, they just don't know, you know, as David talks, you know, you know, a lot of liberation theology is animated by genuine social concern for the suffering of millions of people around the world. And they feel like they have to ground the answer to that in religion. Is that, is that an impulse that you see as, as, as healthy? And how do... How do we relate that to sort of the ordinary concerns of everyday people? 
first off, that David and um, Walker and I have all gotten the privilege to work under Michael Miller for um, a project that we're working on, the Poverty Cure Center for America. And the the whole instance of poverty cure was to look at the human person through this theological um, vision that they have dignity and liberty, and it's they're not um, something to be socially controlled um, or manipulated. And that's like where I think the division happens is that um, in sometimes it's easy to be in a governmental position to say, well, this blanket policy will affect X, Y, and Z, and it will work. And it's like, well, no, it won't, because we have people who are subjects, not objects, as Michael Miller likes to say. And so um, this discussion is very important for the practical application of policy, because um, it affects human lives, and that they're not just some number on a page to um, help the economy flow. They have families, they have um, vision, and they have dignity. And so um, that's that's where I see that a grounding in religion is so important for um, not only people of policymakers, but also as, as a society to where we can stand up together to recognize maybe policies that um, are inflicting upon those things, um, where we can recognize policies that manipulate people or are not working for the human person or for the good of our community. And um, the way you vision and the way that you can see that is if you have this grounding in um, the subjectivity of people. So we are at an interesting point in the conversation where I think we've, we've, we've discussed sort of three major things. We've gotten some background and I'm wondering where you are going next. Not, you know, like after we leave the studio, but in the sense of your own thinking, what are, what are some things that, some interests that have been sparked, some debates that have intrigued you? Where are you going next in thinking through ideas, um, any, any, any new sort of intellectual projects? Uh, P.K.S. Iyengar was one of the major figures in the introduction of yoga in North America, and he often talked about how change is difficult if it's not sustained by practice. And what I think, you know, what I hope that we've been able to, to offer you through the Emerging Leaders Program is, is a beginning to that practice or an extension of that practice. I mean, many of you have wrestled with these ideas for a long time in your own context. And I'm wondering, um, yeah, just uh, where, where, where your thinking is going next as you think through this synthesis of a, uh, of a free and virtuous society. And we'll, we'll, we'll go to David first. Yeah. So, Acton has definitely sort of fanned the fire of an interest that I've been developing in the history of economics or the history of economic thought. So I'm already, as a student of historical theology, I'm very much interested in the history of ideas. And so um, what I'd like to eventually go on to pursue a PhD in intellectual history with also an emphasis in hopefully political and economic history as well. I like I'm very interested in seeing not just how ideas are formed, but how they sort of affect policy and society 
in in the broader scope of whether it's the United States or in Europe. So I'll be looking for programs like that in the next couple years. Um, but I'm hoping to continue to do work with Acton. It has definitely sparked uh, an interest also to continue on with my interest in historical theology um, and just getting a very good survey of Christian thinkers who've been thinking through these things and uh, not just in a historical way, but hopefully that I can construct some of these conversations in a way where um, through a sort of dialogical reading, we can draw insights from some of these thinkers for for the present day. And so, um, yeah, I'm hoping to continue work with Acton, hoping to continue uh, with my involvement with the Liberty Movement, as well as some of these Liberty Fund events that we, uh, the three of us have had the privilege of being a part of. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm I'm at. Excellent. Walker, where, where are your thoughts taking you these days? Yeah, I just wanted to maybe pop back over to David and see if he wants to talk about Goshlitsky. Oh, yeah. Let's true. do it. <laughs> well, because, so as context for, you know, people listening, Dave and I did a, you know, our overall, it's called our capstone project for the internship. And what we did is we uncovered this thinker that we think is massively important but has been unbelievably understudied, at least today. His name was Vavzhinyets Goshlitsky, and I'm waiting for somebody to say, bless you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but he was a 16th century Polish statesman, philosopher, and bishop who wrote The Accomplished Senator. Uh, and so David and I have talked about expanding on the nearly non-existent scholarship on Goshlitsky because he he's fascinating. He's important. You know, Shakespeare read him. He based Polonius in uh, Hamlet on his reading of the accomplished senator. Uh, Robert Bellarmine read him. Uh, and apparently, you know, through that, he inf- influenced Algernon Sidney and through Sidney, then the American founders, especially Thomas Jefferson, who actually had Goshlitsky's book in his personal library. So I was wondering if you, you know, you want to also expand on that about what we find interesting about Goshlitsky. Yeah, no, we, he's he's definitely an interesting figure for his time. Uh, I believe his dates are in the late 1500s to 1603 or something to 1530 that 1530 to 1607. To 1607, okay, thank you. So he's, he's situated in an era during the Reformation where, as I mentioned earlier, whatever country you lived in, if your king was Catholic, your emperor was Protestant, that determined what your religion was at the time. Um, Erastianism was a political philosophy held by many uh, people, in those days, including John Calvin, including a number of the reformers, where the the state essentially is the head of the church and has the power to enforce uh, the church's discipline of excommunication. And Poland is uniquely situated as a place that didn't exercise that same type of action upon its subjects. And so this initially started as an interest in King Sigismund II, Augustus, who was actually the emperor who uh, Gajlitsky was serving underneath as secretary. Um, And Poland, though the king and Gajlitsky himself as the Catholic bishop were both devout Roman Catholics, exercised in a a very big amount of religious tolerance for Lutherans in the time, as well as a number of, I think, Orthodox as well. Um, And so they uh, treated them much better um, than uh, they would have been treated had they been in another Catholic state at the time, and vice versa. And so we're looking at Poland as sort of this uh, unique uh, project that is worthy of uplifting as a model uh, for 
not just its era, but for continuing moving forward with um, just religious tolerance and not uh, enforcing uh, the binding of one's conscience to a particular faith. And so, Gajlitsky, we're, we're planning on doing uh, some work on this because there's very little literature on him. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to get some academic pe- papers out of this. Um, but it's a project, a long-term project that Walker and I are going to be working on, yes. Yeah, to add to that, I mean, the interesting thing about Gushlitsky, also from Acton's perspective, is his entire philosophy and his political science and sociology comes from a robust understanding of the human person. Book one, chapter one of The Accomplished Ender starts with, well, what is the good life and what is the person that's experiencing that good life? And he grounds it fundamentally in the Imago Dei and in a really robust reading of the classics. I joked when I made my presentation that if you read Goschlitsky, you don't have to read Plato and Aristotle because he cites them so much, you're already reading them too. Uh, And, you know, that's an exaggeration, but he comes up with some kind of interesting arguments that deserve an analysis, even from a public choice and Austrian perspective. I think there's some interesting sociology there. Like... You know, the typical argument about why you need a council in a monarchical regime is that it allows a sort of power sharing by the dictator to give money and other rents to the people who hold power in the society, thus that they support his regime. And Goshlitsky doesn't talk about that, but his reasoning for why you need a Senate in particular and why they should have power It's a sort of proto-knowledge problem in which the king is so far removed from the people, even if he's fundamentally virtuous, like he he goes on a long diatribe about, he doesn't have the ability to get all of the knowledge he needs about the people in order to to properly administer. He likens this to being like a god. Um, And that's just not possible. So he says, well, the Senate is midway through the king and the people. He can get the important things from the king. He can be situated in the ways of the government, but at the same time, he's close enough to the people that he can get their customs and manners. Um, And there's a whole bunch of other interesting arguments like that in there. Uh, Dalibor Rohach, one of the very, very few arguments in there, said, well, Goshlitsky is an important proto-public choice and proto-libertarian thinker that has never been thought of. And the cool thing for Acton is, well, he's grounding this in what's essentially also a proto-actin synthesis. And even though he was read by Shakespeare and Jefferson and Bellarmine, nobody's writing about him. Like, this is an opportunity, I think, and I'm excited to pursue that. That is outstanding. Lord Acton himself had this instinct that there are precursors to what he would call liberalism. And he talked about it being buried in the ponderous prose of Jesuits. (laughs) (laughs) Molina, Suarez... Um, and that rediscovery is exciting. I think that's a great project. Um, Lauren, you have that master's in public policy. You're looking at, at, at entering that world. Um, what's, what sort of projects, ideas, rabbit trails have, have you been, have, do you look forward to following down? I think a lot of it has come from uh, David and I's work on the Poverty Cure Center because we've gotten to explore 
uh, many different avenues that contribute to poverty, that it's not just, you know, income inequality or mobility. It's it has to do with the human person. So we got to explore social isolation or technology or um, differences in criminal justice system, equality and um, everything that kind of contributes to what um, is deprivation for a good life. Um, And so I've been really excited to do a project of public policy at my university to maybe explore how um, criminal justice reform could be going on, but also through the human person, where it's not just um, kind of what we've been seeing about um, there's one way or the other on how to approach this, that um, there's many different avenues to take. And I would like to explore that further. But then um, I've also written a couple of papers on the impacts of what we're seeing after, especially after COVID, the social isolation um, and how people are becoming depressed and um, separated from their communities in which if communities are the foundation of America, what do we do? And so um, that's been a really interesting project I've been exploring. And I would really like to um, work in possibly either state or local governments to facilitate more community building policies. Um, And so that's what I've been exploring. And Acton has really helped with that understanding of the human person and economics. That is that is wonderful. Well, I am not depressed and I am not alone because I had a wonderful summer with all of you. Um, It has been a real pleasure to get to know all of you. I wish we had more time together. but you have you have enriched my experience and stimulated my own thinking throughout your whole time here. And I wish you all the very best. It's been a pleasure working with you, Dan, and we really appreciate that. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Dan. I loved it. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa Zsa. <laughs>